it was like someone had a paintbrush and was just painting the front of my brain like that sounds like green that sounds like blue that sounds like red for introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and my guest today is the lead vocalist and really the creator of the Australian orchestral art rock band, The Red Paintings. The Red Paintings are known for their very theatrical performances with vivid staging and costumes and often actual painting on human canvases happening during the shows. You're going to want to stick around for this one because we will be debuting or previewing one of The Red Paintings' new songs, which won't be released until Christmas, so you can just hear it here for the meantime. Please welcome to the show, Trash McSweeney. Hello from a sunny London. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Um, An Australian all the way over in London. Yes. Yeah. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah, you know, COVID's got me stuck here and uh, the Australian government, unfortunately, doesn't really take care of us tourists all that that well. So um, it's quite political and... um, but hey, like it could be worse, right? It could be stuck in Melbourne and then getting five thousand dollar fines for going down the road to get a six pack. Yeah, yeah. My family's in Melbourne at the moment. I'm just like, just stay home. Don't risk it. Just stay home. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's an important. Yeah. It's a weird time in humanity. Period. I think across the world. So something. Yeah. Something. Just got to get used to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll get into it. Um, so I want to start off. Have sure. you always been into music? You know, did you did you sing or play instruments as a kid or? Um, yeah, so um, I, don't, I never really I wasn't growing up with music. I don't have a musical family. Um, my parents had me when they were 16 years old or actually 15 and nine months. They met at a party and realized they had the same birth date and were born on the same year and thought it was fate. Um, made love and accidentally had a child <laughs> called Trash. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, it was a bit of a hard upbringing for me. Um, but when I was in my teens, well, actually, when I was probably 12, I, I um, joined a school band and played saxophone, just the typical kind of brass school band. Nice. It was super uncool and my friends thought I was uncool doing it. <laughs> but I definitely had a connection um, to the vibration of music and that fed into guitar when I was 15, 16, and then I realized it was a form of expression that mm. really became my best friend. So for me, it was like I was really struggling growing up as a kid, especially in my teens, not knowing who to talk to about my own headspace and my own emotional kind of turmoil and mm. my own demons. And music was just a pure reflection and a form of therapy. And it always has been. I've really stuck with it all through my life now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, saxophone to me is one of the best instruments like I Mm. used to play trombone um yeah which which I did love though I ended up selling my trombone to buy my first car (laughs) but um yeah always loved the saxophone thought it was great but um so you said you you then you sort of you went into playing guitar obviously you were you were in band when you played the saxophone but was the red paintings your first you know sort of rock band or did you have other sort of bands as you were you know growing up yeah interesting question so um okay so i moved from um melbourne actually i'm from geelong so geelong Mm. is south of melbourne for most people will know that listening from australia of course and um my my parents at the age of i think i was 15 wanted to move me um to coffs harbour for a job um opportunity that they had and when we moved to coffs harbour i was really upset because i just had friends you know you're growing up you're 15 years old and you've got close friends that you've had yeah and it was a move that i really didn't want and then um the job fell through for my parents and then they were frustrated i was frustrated um and then the next thing i knew my mum my mum was saving my my mum i thought my mum was spending my oz study money it's oz study is it that you get when you're in high school if your parents aren't doing too well financially I and I got so, really yeah. upset. I got really upset with my mum. I was like, I want some of this money for me. Like, I want, and I was working at the time, but I was just a frustrated child. And it turns out she'd saved some of the money and got me a cheap guitar um, and thought it'd be good for me to get back into the music. And, mm. and, I, and I hated it, actually. I went and sold the guitar and got a PlayStation. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that frustrated my mum. And then we were just at war with each other. And mm. then um, my parents were actually um, 
they brought me up a Christian actually, and I'm not I'm not into the Christian religion, so to speak. I believe that there's an all an almighty power and maybe an architect in the universe that creates what it creates, but I'm not stuck into one religion kind of mindset. Um, but the local church had a band and the guitarist who was an older guy, he actually offered to give me guitar lessons and maybe my mum whispered to him, you know, try and educate my kid or <laughs> trying to bring him over to the to the dark side or to the light side, should I say? Mm. And then the next thing I knew, I'd done a couple of guitar lessons and then I decided, hey, this is kind of cool. Um, and then I had a breakup with a girl, uh, which was really, really bad, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I wrote my first song, which was I Need You. That's right. <laughs> I wrote my first song. And I remember, I remember this really clear. I was sitting at a desk in my room, just like frustrated little like teenager, and I looked at the guitar because um, I ended up getting the guitar back. I can't remember what happened, but I had another guitar in my room and I picked it up and I just wrote this song. It just came out really, it was like free, freestyle, but I realized yeah. I could write. I realized I just had something. Yeah. And was then, it any um, good, that first song? Um, <laughs> it was quite poppy. I remember the lyrics. Um, Yeah, I need you. Yeah. I don't know. It sounded something from like Jebediah or Silverchair or some shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it did. I'm sure it was terrible. Um, but that led into me actually writing a lot. And then the next thing I, I, um, I still was like someone who didn't want to be in bands, but, um, my friends had formed a band and were, um, rehearsing at the local church mm. and, um, I was just sitting there watching them cause that's what you do with your friends, probably like sneaking in beers, who knows? And they said, Oh, we need someone to sing. Can you just get up and scream or do something? I'm like, Oh yeah, fuck it. Okay. So I got on stage or wherever we were and started like singing the songs and they were like, you're the singer. And I said, what? I don't sing. <laughs> And they said, yeah, you do. You're really good. And I'm like, I'm not very good. And I have stage fright and this feels wrong. And they said, no, no, no. So they kind of coached me into it through peer pressure. And the next thing I knew, I did a show. At, uh, they, had a, they had this thing called Grunge Church or something like this. And they had us play like five songs. And we got on stage and I was singing. I got three songs in and I hated it. And I walked off stage and the band were really pissed. It just didn't feel right to me. And, yeah. then, and then true story, the next week, something triggered in my brain and I was like, I'm going to start my own project. And I called it tantrum. And then I had a band in Coffs Harbor that actually did really well, really quickly. Meaning that I formed this band. I wrote the songs. I was playing in friends' backyards. I was getting offered like weird, cool little shows. And then that led to me having a seizure, which mm. led to me creating the red paintings. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of your your seizure, you have something, and I doubt I'm going to pronounce this correctly, uh, <laughs> called synesthesia. Was that right? That's it. There you know there it. You go. Absolutely. Um, which means you can sort of see sound and colour. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I did. Yeah. That's it. You described it very well. So some of us on the planet apparently can see numbers, can hear music as colour. It just means we're kind of tapped into an energy, probably a subconscious thing where a subconscious is coming to our forefront, to our conscious mind, mm. and we're just seeing things just in a slightly different way. The brain's just yeah. triggering, triggering things in a slightly different way. Yeah. So did that start after the seizure or had you always had Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So long story yeah. short, um, I I had a seizure in um, Coffs Harbour. I've had four seizures in my life and they've completely flipped my um current lifestyle upside down it's very very odd mm. it's almost like you know some of us get to a crossroad we're not sure where to go i have a seizure and it just throws me down one road and then i never look back so yeah. I, I, my first seizure when i was i think i was 19 um and um i was in Coffs harbour and i was with some friends and it was like five or six in the morning and i just remember so, like people were smoking like bongs at the time or whatever mm. by the way i'm not a big pot smoker or, or into drugs or anything like that but when you're growing up in Coffs harbour every, a lot of people are smoking pot and you're just introduced to these things and you're just kind of there because your friends are there right yeah um and i just remember the, the bong being handed to me and me going oh, i don't want that and then looking at my best friend who's still my best friend actually and saying something really weird's happening in my brain man i'm gonna need your help and he's like what and the next thing i knew i woke up in a hospital and my wow. friends who were stoned out of their brains <laughs> watching their buddy on the floor no. with a bloody seizure. Yeah. And then one of them was, you know, kind of smart enough and had his head together to kind of roll me on my side, apparently, mm -hmm. call an ambulance um, and then get me to hospital. Um, then my mum came up. She was living in Melbourne and came up and got me, moved me back down to Melbourne, Geelong. And then um, I was kind of like not sure what I was doing in life. And then I had my second seizure quite quickly in a supermarket. And that was the game changer. So 
the story with that was I was in the supermarket. I was looking to form a new band. Um, I looked at like weirdly enough, the mince meat in the meat section started to go blurry. I could just feel my brain going like like a wave. And yeah. then I and then apparently I fell on the floor. I woke up in the ambulance and I remember um, very clearly them saying, what's your name? And I couldn't see anything in my brain. It was like I had amnesia. So my brain had just decided to empty everything out. And then after time, I could tell you it was like there was like white blurry objects were coming into my kind of vision, so to speak, inside my head. And it was actually words telling me, here's your birth date. Here's your name. This is where you live. These are your wow. memories. And it was like a reboot of the system through the seizure. Yeah. Um, the one visual that I remember that I still have kind of like, I'm going to call them nightmares, is when I was in that seizure, it felt like I was falling through this like tunnel 100 miles per hour. And in the tunnel, I remember like, um, there was like this red rust that was all around the walls of the tunnel. Yeah. And weirdly enough, within my own synesthesia, I can't see the color red in sound. I just can't find it. So <laughs> when I hear music of all spectrums, um, yeah. uh, I just can't, I can't see red. I can see every other color and every other shade, but I can't find <laughs> that, which is so odd to me. So, so then why yeah. did you call it the red paintings? Because I thought it was maybe because you saw red when you sang music, but well, you can't see red. <laughs> yeah, I don't work like that in art. I used to do everything the opposite. So yeah. Um, so in regards to that story, so what happened was when I was in the hospital, I heard music mm. and I noticed that um, my brain was triggering color. So I was like, oh, yeah. that's weird. And the best way to describe it would be, it was like someone had a paintbrush in my, I guess, conscious mind now and was just painting the front of my brain like, that sounds like green, that sounds like blue, that sounds like red. And when my mum got me out of the hospital, we had a lot of tests, by the way. Like, they were testing me for tumours and all sorts of stuff, whether I was epileptic and all this kind of stuff. It was quite, really scary for me. And yeah. um, when I got home, I said to my mum, can you just leave me alone? Like, I need to be on my own for a few days. So mm -hmm. I literally just locked my door and I painted my entire room into this kind of, like, spiritual collage which was just like an expression of everything coming out of my system wow. was just getting splattered on the walls yeah um and then i remember listening to like bjork and these kind of more like passionate like really eccentric artists and mm. then i started to notice my brain was really capturing like a rainbow of colors and then i remember picking up a guitar and playing it and going holy shit that's that's where orange is it's in c oh green's in oh it's in d minor out of seventh oh that's a shade of green that i really relate to and it's really passionate and that's how i started creating the red paintings through finding combinations of colors through actually playing instruments um mm. and then it became a fusion and then red paintings is really as simply this i wanted to do a fusion of art and music as one i was creating the music by hearing colors so to speak and then i thought well wouldn't it be nice to have people on stage and they can express how they interpret the music that's come through me and the universe has channeled yeah. through me i've created it let's see what they do and it naturally just became like the right thing to do for the band because it was a progression of my life and where my mental state was at if that makes sense mm. yeah yeah and then I've never looked back, you know, and the Australian music industry has been hard for me because when I started to do that, it was kind of cool for a second. And then all of a sudden there were people like there were a couple of people at Triple J who were saying it was a gimmick. And you know, I couldn't they were kind of I was kind of hearing like the music isn't good, isn't like the music's not good enough. So the guy has to have gimmicks to have success uh, in the music industry. And I was oh, that's like, frustrating. Yeah, because it wasn't like that for me. Like yeah. I, I ended up doing a tour called the Black Paintings Tour when, when the band was really firing in Australia. And I was like, all right, no painters. None of the stuff that we do on stage. I'll just get on stage with my band and we'll just kick ass. And yeah. that was that was some of the best like reviews we ever had. And it was just based on the tune. So I was like, yeah. I was like screw you. And then and then my my life moved to Los Angeles after that. But um, but it's not it's been a it's been a hard struggle with red paintings. I think it's hard for a band. It's hard for a theatrical band trying to do something different to really mm -hmm. find your niche audience and then explode and find critical mass. Like bands like Ghost yeah. have done it. You know, The Who, that Mongolian band's been lucky recently. Um, obviously, bands like Kiss or whatnot have found their niche market yeah. quite quickly. But it's been hard for me because the managers and people I've found in the industry have wanted to kind of pigeonhole me and then make me go down the road of their successful bands and then have yeah. a similar audience because it works. And I'm like, that will yeah. not work for us. Like we have a totally different thing going on. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey.
Yeah. And so how did, um, you know, like, did, did you know the people that are in the red paintings already? Did you, did you find the other, you know, band members? How did sort of the band come together? Yeah. Okay. So, so red paintings, um, is actually my, I would say it's my baby. So I'm writing all the songs I'm coming yeah. up with, um, a lot of like the strings and all that stuff. I have string arrangers that come in that I, mm-hmm. if I don't hire, they're in the band. If they're good enough to arrange, they'll arrange my concepts into 45 piece orchestras, um, which we go and record. And I will conduct myself or conduct with the violinist or cello players in TRP. Yeah. But, but red paintings has really become over the years, a collaboration because mm. one thing I'll say, and I'm sure most artists will definitely agree with, the hardest thing about being in a band, especially one that's not like financially successful, is trying to keep your band members together because you can't pay them accordingly yeah. for them not to have to go and do a regular nine to five job. And when you start yeah. having a band where everyone's committed and then you have one band member and he's like, well, I can only jam once a week and the rest of us are jamming five days a week. You start to, you start to feel yeah. the separation because you're like, well, are we all committed here or we're not? And then the fourth person goes, well, the you know, the bass player is not as committed. So after six months, he's like, well, unless I'm paid X amount of cash, well, I can only give three nights a week instead of five. And then, so that, that, that I realized early, I was like, okay, this is not going to work unless I fully control this and I can move around the world when I need to and regroup my songs with different players and mm-hmm. just keep going down the road and keep touring all different countries and just keep this thing running, you know, as, as quickly and smoothly as possible. So Red Pennings ended up becoming a band where I created I created actual bands in different cities. I have a band in Hollywood. I have a band in London. I have a band in Australia. Wow. And depending on the tours, and they're all really great friends of mine, and they all understand yeah. the situation. Um, I will go and be based with them. They'll learn the new songs that I've written if there's a new release. Um, they mm-hmm. may already know the old songs. We'll jam for up to three months, and I'll get them, like, spend as much time as I can with them individually and as a group, and then we go on the tours. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only way a band from Australia, I think, in my situation could still do this as you're starting to get into your thirties. Like how else, how else can you survive this having to pay out three to five band members and your crew and your marketing and everything else that goes into being a band. It's such a big business more than most people realize. There's so many, there's so many sectors of, of people getting paid and then down the line, other people getting paid to get you on the road to do what you do. It's really not, as simple as three dudes jump on the road and it just happens. Like I know from the hard experience of having to do it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. When did it sort of um, transition from you sort of, you know, having a few people and, and you know, singing as the red paintings to, to having that huge, you know, global like, of, of all the different groups around the world. Yeah. So when I, when I started the band, I was in Geelong and, um, mm. I had a girl bass player. Um, I was working at a supermarket and there was a drummer there. I picked him up. Um, he's a very quiet guy, but God, he could drum. And then I always <laughs> wanted strings. So my violin player at the time, I was I was playing him the compositions that I wanted while I was trying to learn the violin and playing them myself. And he said, mm. I'm going to join your band. This is great. This is a great concept. I love <laughs> these songs, um, which was awesome for me. So I had a violinist. And then um, I knew two DJs in, in town that were quite good. So I... Um, I got two DJs in Red Paintings doing sampling and sequencing so we could build the sound even more. Um, And they were the core of the Red Paintings. As far as I was concerned, they were in the Red Paintings. It was an original band. I was writing the music. We were jamming all the time. Everybody wanted world success. A manager came and found us, was following us. I think she was Swedish. And this is where it all went wrong. And this is what happens to bands all the time, where they really have their shit together and then – a manager, someone outside who isn't an artist, they're a business person, yeah. usually they'll come in and then they try to dictate moves to you, especially when you're a young band and you're just like, you just go, okay, whatever you want. You're going to make a successful, famous, whatever you want yeah. to call it. This happened to us at probably the worst time. Um, so in a nutshell, a manager comes in, the band's starting to really fire in Melbourne. Things are going really well. It's the original band. Everybody's happy. They feel like they've got their place in the band. They feel important. She comes in, she starts dictating moves like, um, she's like, trash, I'm going to tell you what you're going to say between songs. Um, the violinist um, doesn't have enough hair for me, so I'm going to start wearing, like, he's going to wear hats and do sorts of whatever he's going to wear oh, on stage, and I'm going to tell him what to wear. Um, 
and the list went on and then I was yeah. like the, and then the band's just like you know we're having these meetings with the manager and she's dictating each individual person's move and I was like hang on a second I don't want you to tell them what they should say or feel or whatever like the band wasn't built on that it was just a pure passion yeah. band where you're hard in the sleeve and go and um even though the band was always theatric I got to say I was building theatrics and doing what I do but um that killed everything so the whole band fell apart pretty quickly they all said they loved me but they couldn't work with yeah. a manager like that and I was stuck because I'm like she's just paid for our record and what the fuck am I gonna do <laughs> like yeah so so they fell apart and I is the band over I went no the band's not over so I regrouped the band found an all new lineup again we went for it again um I tried to manage it and find other Australian managers I ended up finding a manager who ended up doing something similar but then with the major label industry in australia and then that really killed me because then i realized shit you got to get lawyers and you have to be really careful like mm. managers if they think they have a band with stars in their eyes a lot of them they will take as much as they can from you until you smarten up and you realize how the business works and you yeah. start asking the right questions to know yeah. if they're taking you down the wrong road financially from a business perspective that happened to red pennings a few times in australia and it just killed us. It wasn't mm. that the band was was killing itself. It was that I was finding the wrong people to handle our business. And that was reflect, reflecting badly on me and on the band, I would generally say. But yeah. also, I blame myself for that because you just can't afford to just be an artist in this day and age. And even back then, like a few years back when I started Red Pinks, I could. you just can't afford to just think someone else is going to come in and they're going to be acting like a family member where you know your family members aren't going to screw you over. They're going to take care of your best interests. Mm. No, they don't do that. Yeah, they they, they come across yeah. like that, and that's how they suck you in. But ultimately, yeah. it is strictly business. They're for themselves, and, yeah. And, like, exactly, they're in they're in for themselves. They want to make a buck. They want to look cool. They're older people. And it's great to say they're managing one of the hip bands in town, and that's what it comes down to, I think. <laughs> like, I haven't yeah. seen anything less than that. That's been my experiences through yeah. and through, really. Yeah. Um, well, I want to, you know, talk about that, that theatricality that you mentioned, you know, you always sure. have, um, fantastic costumes and staging. And like you said, it's, you know, a mixture between that, that artwork and, you know, that, sorry, art and, and music together. How did people first react when, you know, cause most people, when they, when they go to a gig, they don't necessarily expect to, you know, jump up and do painting or whatever it is. Um, you know, how did people first sort of react at those early gigs when you tried to get them to come up? Yeah, cool. Um, great question. So, um, when I first, the first time that I became kind of like the trash McSweeney, like on stage green coat, I had a Chinese communist hat. Um, I had my, I had uh, my toys in my, I collect like Japanese geisha toys and Chinese dolls or whatnot. I put them on stage. I dressed up the band in, um, in Asian culture. Number one, the reason that I did this is because I went, I went to China when I was really young. I just put myself on a plane and I went to China and I did an acoustic tour. And I wanted to understand cultures outside of Western society. I wanted to understand symbolism and, and you know, hit the history of arts, the history of art culture, not just from Geelong, you know, having a barbecue <laughs> and playing a guitar in the, back, in the background. I, there was something more from life that I needed and that I needed to get, I needed to project in red paintings that I wasn't getting from Australian culture, I would say. Mm -hmm. I was reading it in books, but I wasn't going to experience it in the, the real flesh and, and within the people. So I fell into the world of Japanese, like of geisha, of the geishas. And the mm. geishas were these, um, were the original female entertainers from thousands of years ago, where they literally were just amazing dancers and had formed like a, like a spiritual kind of way of entertaining the people of, of their time, um, which I found really prolific. So I wanted to bring that culture from the past um, into the red paintings look and feel and sound. It made sense to me because the red paintings are like an artwork. Each song is a fragment of time that fits the moment. And each time you, I think, listen to a red painting song, it's like going into an art gallery and seeing an exhibit of, of paintings and going, oh, wow, that's like a reflection of the times. And yeah. I write those songs like that, right? So, um, so when I went to do that on stage, straight away heckling. I remember the first show that we did, people like, you know, what the hell's going on here? These guys are weirdos. And mm. um, some of the reviews were really bad. I'm sure some of the costuming looked bad because I was making it with my own hands. <laughs> <laughs> I was just learning how to sew. Yeah. I needed to get this out of my system. And, and 
I didn't really mind the bad reviews. I, I think I understood why it was happening, but I knew I needed to find fine tune my art and get better and better at it. And the more that the more gigs we played, I started to find that people were approaching me saying, hey, I'm a costume designer. Hey, I'm really good at sewing. Hey, can I get involved in this cool project? And then the red painting started to become like a community band to the point that people were inviting us to barbecues in their backyard and we were having working bees to make the stage shows. When yeah. I say stage shows, like human canvas heads, um, I was coming up with this destroy the robots concept. And I said to the fan base that was growing quite quickly, actually, um, I said, bring all your um, recycled metal bits at home, old computers, whatever you have. We're going to build giant robots and we're going to march cities around Australia and say <laughs> the music industry needs to take care of artists and not treat them like robots, like, you know, yeah. like they're just a commodity. Let's let's talk about this. Um, and red painting started to blow up then. Triple J were calling me inside the robots while I was marching. Um, I was doing animal rebellion marches and we were all we were um, doing working bees and creating genetically engineered animal heads. And I was dressing as Noah and, and you know, through Sydney Mall mm -hmm. and Brisbane Mall and Melbourne Mall. And the song, be the, the band became very prolific through its artistic performances and everything that was happening on stage, as in like the stage shows we were creating, were a reflection of the symbolism and the messages that we were projecting in the songs, period. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. the band, and I learned that from, from Chinese and Japanese culture and its past. So um, it, it was working. It was fine. Of course, in, in, in all genres of music, someone's going to hate you and someone's going to love you. All this yeah. is so subjective, right? And that's in, was, that's in yeah. everything in performing. You know, you it can't please is. everyone. Yeah. So if you don't let it get to you and, and you realize, you know, there's enough people out there that love me, that's fine. They can carry me through. Then there's no problem. Um, so it was all fine until I started to get really political. And I had, a, I had an epiphany when it comes to animal rights. I started to think that, and I still do think this, that we're living in an animal holocaust, that we treat animals so terribly, these beautiful creatures that want to live and don't have a voice. And I wanted Red Paintings to really encapsulate that, I guess you could say, activist movement. Mm. And that started in Australia when I started to realise that the Australian government was allowing the Japanese to go into Australian waters and slaughter whales in Australian waters. Yeah. And then I and then I was hearing about Sea Shepherd and then I was involved with Paul Watson and then we Paul Watson and I rewrote um the Midnight Oil song, How Do We Sleep While the Beds Are Burning to How Do We Sleep While the Whales Are Dying. Peter Garrett got voted in as the as the Australian um environment um prime uh, minister. And then all hell broke loose. I just I realized <laughs> controversy is expensive. Controversy is expensive. Yeah. You have to be really smart when, how, and why you project what you feel is right in the general public or they will slander you and beat the shit out of you. And that happened to me. It, it was mm. a real downfall in my career, me being so political for Wales. It was just the wrong timing. And so that ended up forcing me to go to Los Angeles and live there for five years and rebuild my career in a totally different environment. And I never went back to Australia. Yeah, yeah. And you, know, you, you mentioned that you know you you um, were in LA for a while, and you're in London at the moment. Um, yep. You've performed sort of in in all different places. Where have you been? Like, I don't know if best received is the right thing, or or where do you find sure. people? Um, you know, really get you and get what yeah, you guys uh, do. Well, Germany, Germany loves red paintings. Like, uh, uh, the really? Band can make money. The band can make money in Germany. The shows are incredible. They're like, it's like going to your family's house. Like we arrive at every show in Germany and there's a full smorgasbord of vegan, vegetarian food for us waiting. <laughs> um, the fans will line up for hours on end. Um, after the gigs, like I, I always go out and meet the fans. I do that anywhere in the world. I go out and meet the fans, sign whatever they want. Um, and we'll drink with them till four in the morning and yeah. they'll try and teach me German. And it's just, it's a really fun <laughs> and it's a really fun and supportive time. There's, I'm never short of painters and human canvases. There's always enough people. Yeah. Um, but in saying that, like the band, the band does have a fan base worldwide. Like there's, I've, I've toured America quite a few times. I reckon I've toured every single state in America. Like you name it, we've at least done a show there. Wow. Um, and, like, we've played, like, really, really small towns, say, on a Monday night, and it's not even a university town. And at least, like, five people have rolled up, and one of them's a huge fan of Mad World, and they brought their friends. And, it's, mm. you know, they're yelling out, like, we'll play Mad World. And we're like, wow, at least five <laughs> people rolled up. Um, so 
so I guess like the voice of the band has spread through the world. It's not massive, so to speak. And in some countries we're bigger than others, but it's pretty amazing for me as it's just a, like a dude, a sing, like a skinny dude from Australia that really yeah. believed in something, no matter what, at all costs, jumped off the bridge of life and went, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, whether people stop me or not. Like this feels like the right thing to do for me. Um, yeah. And it's, it's still working. Like it's we're get we're growing. We, our reach is getting larger and larger. You know, every day I've noticed. Yeah, and you know, you talked there about uh, you know hanging out with your fans till four a.m. having drinks and things. Yeah. And, um, uh, you you and I have never met before, but the reason that we were able to get in contact because you were friends with my uncle Bob, who unfortunately uh, passed away a few months ago from cancer, and sure. as as far as I'm aware, you guys met because he was a fan that reached out to you. Yeah, he was. Um, a very enthusiastic fan, actually, um, <laughs> in, all, in all the best ways. And um, usually when, when I – like, I have quite a few people reach out to me, but Bob, I don't know, there's something about him. Just the way that he describes what the, what my music and the, the Red Panties music do, does for him and did for him was just yeah. really um, – really touching for me actually yeah and so we had some pretty deep conversations um and uh he was the uh there's three people that have heard this david bowie cover that we did and i remember he hit me up like i think it was february this year um and i just felt the need to give him something he really wanted actually i gotta be honest i'm when i found out that he passed away was recently i think by your father yeah and um I'd actually hit him up because I needed to send him a T-shirt that he'd ordered. So I was <laughs> checking on the, on the size of his T-shirt and making sure his address was okay. And I wanted to personally send him a note to thank him and everything. And then I find, I found out that he passed away and I was in tears all day. It really, it really affected me. Um, and the one thing that uh, I think affected me out of at the most was the fact that he so badly wanted to hear this record that we finished. And I, I've been struggling to get it out because we got screwed by Pledge Music. We lost like $50,000 through Pledge Music, which is this organization in America that screwed a heap of bands, um, which was our money for our production. And and then we had other problems. And I was I remember talking to him and, and he was saying, you know, I want to hear this record. I like it's the record of the year or the decade for me. And I was like, just give me a couple more months and I'll have this in your ears. But in the meantime, how about I give you this David Bowie track? And he was yeah. like, hell yeah. So I gave him the David Bowie track. He's like, my dogs, my dogs are sitting around the speakers right now. They're listening. And he was sending me photos of his dogs listening. And he was like, trash, this is so amazing. You've really done well with Bowie. Like, it's a hard track to do. You've nailed this. And I was so excited that I was finally you know, able to give him that. And then I find out that he passed away. And I just, yeah. I really wished he could have heard this record. Because this record was made for people like Bob. I know Bob would listen to this record and see his whole life in the record. He just, yeah. I would have, uh, there's something about this record that I made. It encapsulates the essence of being human and all the crazy shit that we go through before we get to the end and when we pass our last breath, but it wasn't yeah. to be. Yeah. And he, he just like music was his thing. Like every time I went, um, you know, he lived in a small country town, so I didn't see him that often. But every time we went there, sure. like I'd take a bunch of CDs because he had this amazing sound system. And I'm like, I want to hear how this sounds on your sound system. Ah, love and it. then like yeah. he'd introduce me to a bunch of stuff. And um, yeah, since his past, my dad has basically gotten all of his CDs and all of his records and has been sitting and going, I'm going to send this one to this person and is just sending all of these CDs like around Australia of Bob's wow. music. And um, yeah. I know for a fact that dad has um, hidden away from him for himself um, one of your records, The Revolution Is Never Coming, because he heard that oh, and cool. went, I'm, I'm keeping that one. Um, <laughs> I love it. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask, is that um, a yeah. thing that, that happens often, that you sort of become friends with your with your fans and people that reach out? Look, I, I've always said to the fan base that they are our management company, that there's yeah. an industry out there that might manage our business, but ultimately we make a lot of decisions together. A lot of the things that I do, I will reflect off the fans. I have a, I have a, I have a core, I have a, like a kind of like, let's call them super fans around the world and they're in a group. And then if I'm doing certain things creatively, I'll bounce it off them and go, what do you think of this? Would you like this to be in the world? Do you, do you, do you feel something from this? So mm. yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely everything. Like my, my fan base with red paintings has carried me through the years of TRP. When the industry's 
when the industry has really beat me down, taken our money, completely screwed us, and I thought we were done, the fan base came back and said, please don't die. What do you need? And I'll be like, well, we need, we need to pay these debts off. And the fans have come through and helped me pay the debts off. In every case, like, it's insane. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't know too many bands that have that kind of, um, I don't know, deep love with their fans. Yeah. And, but it's just, I mean, I'm just being me. Red Paintings, honestly, is a true reflection of who I am. I only write mm. how I feel. I write about, like, the things happening in the world and how they affect me and affect the people around me. I didn't write Red Paintings to buy a house. I'm not the guy trying to write a song to buy a house. It was to write a song to change the world and change mindsets and try and get people to realize his choice, you know, in the things that we do in life. Yeah. It really came down to that. So so maybe lucky for me, Red Paintings is, you know, one of those real bands, like a band that people really need in their lives, like food, like it's nutritional yeah. energy. Um, and so that's why it just keeps going and going. I do believe TRP will explode in the world market. There's going to be a time, and I think it's coming over the next two years because of everything that's happening now, that we're just going to mm. fit the mold. We're just going to slide in, you know, the door's going to open, and I'm just going to see myself walking on huge stages. And I don't say that <laughs> from an egotistical place. I say it because with all the experience I've had with TRP, with the business and everything that's happened up until this point, I can just see the moves. I can see the steps starting to form around yeah. me from the business and everything and, and the people that are approaching me now and the things that they can do, it's like, Oh yeah, it makes sense to take a band like me on now, but it didn't before. And I, and I'm just understanding that. So yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed it does work. Yeah. And I mean, when you're, when you're proud of something, you know, you want people to hear it, you know? So. Well, yeah. I mean, that must be hard for artists because we kind of living in a world now where you write a song, you put it on Spotify, let's say, let's say Facebook, social media, and it disappears in an, in an hour or two or in 24 yeah. hours. And yeah. then if you keep posting it, then you're just kind of pissing people off because they're like, we've already seen right? it. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's quite <laughs> difficult. So I, I think the industry needs to it needs to form a new kind of, um, well, let's say, way of thinking on how to develop artists because there's actually no real development programs in the industry anymore like there used to be. And that's yeah. why artists just don't, I mean, they can't afford to live on their art. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's insanity. Sort of say, oh, it's hard to be an artist, you know, no matter what form that is, you know, whether it's music sure. or acting or something else, you know, it's it's hard. And, you know, you've chosen to take that on. So you're just going to have to live with how hard that is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reality is you kind of do. I mean, I have. Yeah. I can tell you that, like, if you look at my bank account and you can see everything that I've done, it doesn't make sense. You think that yeah. I was like pretty rich, but. I'm not. Everything goes back into it to keep it to keep the art progressing and growing it and getting better at it and doing a lot more of it. But um, yeah, you got to really dedicate yourself if you want success in this industry. Like you said, in all mediums, you really, really yeah. have to destroy everything out there, even if it means you don't talk to your family for three months because you're focused or your girlfriend's pissed off, which I've been through heaps of that. <laughs> um, believe me. Um, yeah, it's a real dedication, and those people eventually get there. Yeah, you know. I think they do, and a lot of them probably go, oh, is this really worth it? Like a university degree, you go through uni, you do up to six years, four to six years, and then at the end you're like, I don't even want this career yeah. anymore. <laughs> like, holy shit, I've got yeah. friends that have done that, and it's like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to um, go back to the fans for just a second because one of okay. your albums, um, I believe it was The Revolution Is Never Coming, which I mentioned earlier, was yep. um, paid for by fans. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, we we did one of the first um, kind of album fundraising campaigns out of yeah. Australia. And sort of like a Kickstart type thing, right? It wasn't even Kickstart. And Kickstart wasn't yeah. even around uh, when I first kicked that off. So all I did is, after I went through the turmoil of our EPs, and I realised this industry wasn't going to nurture my vision, meaning that they're like, we're not going to pay for that. It's too big. Like you just just do mm. this. Don't have forty five piece orchestras. Don't have blah blah. I said, yeah. okay. Like I said to you earlier, I went to the fan base and I said, I want to create this record. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. Will anyone support me? And the fans said, well, why don't we fundraise your record? Let's all get together yeah. and do this on a forum. And so that's exactly what we did. We raised it. We raised about $160,000. Wow. Um, like, like for a band at our level in Australia, 160 grand, I thought was pretty good. Like that's a story, Ooh, money. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the album, the album actually cost $220,000 in the end. Yeah. 
yeah. I mean, albums are not cheap. Like to do albums that I do, it's it's quite it's quite expensive, and I'm not yeah, well, easy to work. Yeah, if you've got with. a forty-five piece orchestral band, that's forty-five people you got to pay. Yeah. Well, it's not. Yeah, it's it's that. <laughs> it's more so. Um, the costs are actually in um, mixing a record and yeah. producing it. So the studios cost X amount of money, and yeah. and time adds up quickly. So if you're yeah. in the studio for approximately three months. Like there's a hundred to hundred fifty grand just there. Like it's it's really yeah. expensive, and yeah. I and I work with high end people. I'm not working with like the up and coming dude in Australia. Like I went to Nashville to mix that with the guy with the lady who did like something for Kate's Records and Bruce Springsteen and these kinds of people, mm. and that didn't even work. So I lost fifty grand because I hated her mixes, and <laughs> then had to take it had to take it to Los Angeles and ended up with this guy who did um like Billy Joe and Alice in Chains or whatnot. And he and him and yeah. I spent three months actually mixing that. And then we got it in the end, I thought. And then he died after it. The fucking dude had a heart attack after making my record. He was 62 oh, years old, I think. And it was the last record he ever, he ever mixed. Wow. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm great. I'm great for people. I, I uh, definitely yeah. have an impression. Far out. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. Yeah. Um, now, do you want to talk a bit about um, the the track that we're going to be playing a little bit later, which is the the Bowie cover that sure. you guys have made? Um, do you do you do many covers? No. Um, actually, at the moment, I'm doing a thing with the fans to keep us both busy, where they they um, pay me uh, to do a cover of their choice. And I do it. It's called Trash and Friends. So I'll pick yeah. people around the world while I'm traveling, and we'll do a, a fans cover, and then we mm-hmm. put it online for them and do it live, or we do a pre-record. But yeah, I, I have been doing a lot of covers to be honest. But when I do a cover, I really want to turn it upside down, right? So when we did Mad yeah. World, which was probably one of the first covers I ever did in my life, Mad World blew up for me. The reason the Red Pains became a success musically around the world was because Mad World just took off on radio stations all around the world, and then gave me a name so to speak yeah um so then i started to kind of realize oh if you're smart with covers then they click yeah. then it can open up the doors for a fan base to discover your catalog right yeah as far as david bowie um his death was a prolific one the way that he'd even marketed himself so smartly in art and in business yeah. in his death with his record and with black star you know and so many little aspects one i'll talk about is that people didn't realize but the the vinyl of black star when you put it in the sun it changes color and it took someone it took someone Damn. 12 months to real yeah it's crazy so apparently somebody was um had the album and there it's a summer's day and they're sitting on a hill and they turn around and realize the album had changed colors and then they put it online <laughs> and then people are like holy shit it's color changing that was that was the mind and prolificness of an artist like david bowie right um yeah and so I'd always thought that five years was such an incredible song, kind of lost in time. I mean, I think he created it in like 1970. And um, it really speaks of today's world and where we're going um, Mm. as far as climate change goes and the way that we strip our natural resources. I think he was saying it back in the early 70s, like, get ready for this. This is really bad. And so I wanted to... um, I wanted to do my own version, like really bring it into my own heart. And we did. We brought brought in the strings and we did it. And then it seemed to me like the song was really kind of – the people that I showed it to in the industry, like the BBC, for example, here in London, thought I really had something. So I decided to do a remake of his BBC Whistler session in 1972 where I think he played the song live for the first time. So we recreated the actual set of the oh, 1972 wow. BBC studios. I'm talking colours, everything. We yeah. got the exact gear that him and the band played <laughs> from 1972 to the point that I went on to a group on Facebook that um, talk about the guitars that were made in the late 60s and early 70s from this um, guitar company that David Bowie actually um, had the guitar from and also the Beatles um, had guitars from his company. It was this guitar. Co- long story short, there was a guitar company, and they were making guitars just for celebrities. And apparently, they were like elite, elite acoustic guitars, mm. right? They were twelve-string guitars. I got lucky, and somebody saw my post who actually had David Bowie's guitar from the. No. Yes, to the point that it turns out they were in London. I'm in London, <laughs> and they were like ten minutes away from me. They were ten minutes away. Oh my god! So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this is fate. This is a sign. I've really <laughs> got to do this clip. 
So I went and met him. He loved me. He loved the red paintings. And he said, you know what, man, I'm going to give you this guitar for this clip. I think it makes sense. It's really important. Mm-hmm. So we have a, we just finished the clip, which is coming out at the end of the year. Um, we're looking to premiere it with BBC. And then, yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I listened to it earlier and absolutely loved it. So I'm excited for people oh, cool. to hear it at the end. Um, but we are almost at the end here. But I awesome. always like to ask a random question towards the end of the interview. And it's different okay. for each person. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> It's just rat. It's completely random. And uh, my one for you is: What is the worst movie you have ever seen? Oh, um, Blair Witch Project Two. <laughs> pretty yeah, bad. yeah. You came up with that pretty quickly. <laughs> it's always been in my head. I remember seeing, going, I just wasted two hours of my life. This is like, why did they even make this? It's just yeah. ridiculous. Um, yeah. Outside of that, no, nah, I'm just gonna go with that. That's perfect. Just go with that. Fair enough. Yeah, quick and simple. I don't even, like, there's some movies that are just, like, so bad they're a little bit good, but I will never yeah. understand Sharknado. I will never get it. Oh, I, right. I'm not seeing that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I'm understand. Sure I don't understand that. Apparently, I've only seen the first one because my friends put it on, but apparently there's, like, six, and I don't... Yeah. I don't understand, but I guess, you know, that's the type of movie that's sort of, you know, made to be bad, if that makes sense. But yeah. It's cheesy. It's cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that there's a bit at the end and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen (laughs) Chuck. I'm sure they won't mind. It's not Game of Thrones. Basically like a girl gets swallowed by a shark and then a guy goes into the shark to try and save her but he goes in chainsaw first and then like cuts open the shark with the chainsaw and pulls like himself and the girl out of the shark and I'm like (laughs) first of all if she didn't get killed by the shark how did she not get killed by the chainsaw (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. welcome to Hollywood they can kind of get away (laughs) with anything yeah exactly it's like a spawn of uh, Jaws isn't it Jaws kicked off something yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, and my last question for you, which is a question I ask everybody, the show is yep. called Loud and Seemingly Confident because it's how I once described myself. Yeah, Do you too. consider yourself a confident person? Um, I would consider myself a driven person. Confidence mm-hmm. is um, – oh, that's, that's – I think it's – how do you define confidence? There's, there, there's some people are confident and it becomes almost narcissistic. It's like too confident. There's there's a fine line between too, being too confident and being yeah. knowing you've got a lot to learn still. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope to say that I'm confident in the ways that are like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm confident. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you can I say it. It's done, not something so to, to you know, shy away from, but yeah. yeah. It comes with experience. I think confidence is something, if you keep doing something, then you finally fine-tune it and you're like, yeah, I've nailed this, then sure, you've got the confidence to put it in front of a, yeah. an audience and go, hey, I think I'm good enough to present this to you, and then things happen. But yes. There's a difference between cocky and confident. Yeah, yeah, that's the word, cocky, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, absolutely. I hope to think I'm not too cocky. I try not to be. I know that I'm so small like in the it. world of things. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, thank you so much for coming onto the show and thank you everybody yeah, for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J Heaney, that's H E A N E Y, or you can follow the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Trash, where can people find out more about you? Um, yeah, theredpaintings.com in a typical Instagram, Facebook, the red paintings, and uh, We've got a new record coming, so we're releasing a lot of stuff over the next month or two. So, yeah, go check it out. Awesome. Um, All right. And as promised, you guys, we're now going to play um, a new song for you guys from The Red Paintings, their cover of David Bowie's Five Years. Uh, I hope you really enjoy it. Bye. through the market square So many mothers crying News had just come over We had five years left to sigh News guy wept when he told us 
was really dying Cried so much that his face was wet And I knew he was not lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite maladies I saw boys and toys, electric irons and TVs My brain hurt like a warehouse, it had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to get everything in there and so many people and all the short fat people and all the nobody people and all the somebody people I never thought I'd need so many people a girl may went off her head hit some tiny children if the black hadn't pulled her off I think she would have killed them a soldier with a broken arm fixed his stare to the wheels of a Cadillac a cop knelt and kissed the feet of a side of that I thought I saw you at an ice cream parlor drinking milkshake 